The scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> For the past uh, several months, we've been looking at what it means to be a Christian. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of context around uh, this passage. In Mark chapter 9, just one chapter prior, uh, Jesus uh, leaves a mountain. He was transfigured. And he's about to enter into Jerusalem to go up a different mountain, Calvary. And sandwiched between this road to transfiguration and the road to Calvary are these pivotal series of teachings where Jesus addresses marriage and children and our relationship with money. And these are, incidentally, three pivotal areas uh, in anyone's life. Um, so on this journey he, uh, towards his suffering, Jesus teaches about what it means to be a Christian. And that's what the series is about. Um, because what it means to be shaped by the gospel is wholly different uh, than mere religion, than theological assent, than just living a moral life, a good life. And, and this passage, it teaches us, it focuses on particularly our relationship with our money, wealth. Now keep in mind, Jesus Christ, he wasn't t talking in front of skeptics here. This was not a forum in front of skeptics. This, this narrative that takes place took place in front of his disciples. And so it teaches us really, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to know at least these three things about money. One, it's power. Two, why it has such power. And lastly, how we can be free of its power. The power of money, why it has such power over our lives, and lastly, how we can be free from the power of money, the grip of money in our lives. First, we're going to look at the power of money. And uh, money has, really what the text is saying is money has this intoxicating power on our souls. It shapes our values. It shapes our beliefs. It can become our measure of worth. In verse 17, we have this man. He's an obedient man, clearly. He talks about obeying all the commandments. He wants to serve God. In the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, he says that he's a young person. In the gospel according to Luke, he says he's a, he's a ruler. So you have this young king, so to speak. And in verse 22, he's wealthy. 
So he's a rich, young ruler. And he approaches Jesus, and he says to him, good teacher. He calls him good teacher. Now think about this. A teacher, anyone you call a teacher, is someone who trains you to achieve your agenda, your purpose in life. You have a particular agenda. You want to grow. You want to improve in this area. A teacher will challenge you. A teacher will validate you. A teacher will grade you along your way as he trains you and as he challenges you. In other words, you're going to define what is good, and a teacher is going to help. But this man, this man approaches Jesus, and he says, good teacher. He's a rich, young ruler. He has the power to judge. He has the power to execute. He's a righteous man. He obeys the commandments. But he calls, even he calls Jesus good. He says, you are righteous, good teacher. And Jesus responds and he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? What is your definition of good? We live in a time where everyone has their own definition of how something should be done, how something should be executed. We all have our opinions, whether it's politically, economically, socially, culturally. In the church, everyone's got an opinion. As to how things should be run. Jesus says, why do you call me good? In other words, I am about to challenge you on your definition of goodness altogether. And we know this because later on, he challenges the man regarding his wealth. And the man actually walks away. Now this is a ruler. This is a king. This is a judge. He's calling Jesus good and righteous. And what he's saying is, what he, when he goes to Jesus, what he's saying is, I can learn from you. I can learn from you. I see you. You are really righteous. You can help to improve my life. I can use you to help me become even better. But later on, what Jesus says to him, he walks away. What does this tell you? Only a Jesus Christ, only a Jesus that is good, first of all, can validate you. We need his validation, we say. Only a Jesus that is good can validate. But only a Jesus that is good can, will also disturb you, challenge you, judge you sometimes, disagree with you, say things that are absolutely uncomfortable for you, sometimes anger you. I'm going to submit to you that this is the only type of Jesus that will actually change you. Now think about this. A God that always agrees with you, a God that always affirms what you want, a God that always affirms what you believe, a God that always helps you to achieve the things that you desire most in your life, that kind of God will never disturb you. That kind of God will never disagree with you. I'm talking about your deepest core values in your life. I'm talking about the things that you want most in your life, the things that you deeply believe. A God like that, a God that always agrees with you, always affirms you, always validates you, will never, ever change you because he will never disagree with you. He will never challenge you. That kind of God will never challenge And that kind of God will never fulfill you because it's a God that you've created in your mind. It will never disturb you. It will only be a product of your desires, do you see? Here's this man. He comes before the king of the universe. He comes in front of the high king, his lord. And in other words, he's coming in front of true power. He's coming before true power and true, true wisdom. And he's saying, your wisdom, your power are not enough. And so he walks away. It's an amazing thing. Here's this man. He comes to him and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, first you've got to obey the commandments. And the man says, he's very bold. He says, uh, I did all these things. All these things I've kept since I was a child. 
And, and Jesus, looking at this man, he says, he says four things to him. He says, I want you to go. I want you to sell all your possessions. I want you to give them up to the poor. And then I want you to follow me. The rich man ultimately couldn't do these things. He couldn't do it. Because in verse 22, the text says that he had great wealth. And so the, just the thought I mean, losing his wealth was his biggest nightmare, his greatest nightmare. And in verse 22, the man, it says that the man, he went away sad. The Greek word for sadness here is a grief, a distress that makes you feel utterly bankrupt. In other words, the man, just the thought of losing, just the thought of giving up his wealth made him feel bankrupt, made him feel like a loser, just a complete loss. It was his biggest nightmare. This text is addressing us. What is your biggest nightmare? What is the thing that you hold in your heart? You say, if, I, if God doesn't fulfill this for me, I am at utter loss. If I can't achieve this one thing in my life, I am a loser. I am at utter loss. I will be in despair. It is my biggest nightmare. The Bible teaches that if you hold wealth to such a high value in your life, it's going to shape your values. It's going to shape your confidence. It's going to shape your identity. It's going to shape who you are. It's going to shape the way you view other people because they, you're going to measure them according to their wealth, how much money they have, their salary, their figure. The Bible says we become slaves. Just the mere idea of losing our wealth makes us grieve. It makes us feel bankrupt. Here's this man. He comes to Jesus. Notice, notice, Jesus, he doesn't have him walk away with just another set of guidelines. He doesn't give him another set of virtues. All these things I've kept ever since I was a child. Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, now you're at the next level. Here's the next level for your growth. Here's another set of virtues. Here's another set of values you can take on. What he says is this. He says, I want you to go home and imagine your life without your wealth. I want you to imagine your life without your IRAs, without your 401k. Just give it up. I want you to give up all of your investments, all of your holdings, all of your securities. I want you to, I want you to sacrifice it. The sum of everything that you have in your bank account, I want you to give it up, and all you have left is me. What he's challenging us to do is I, I want you to take the sum of all of your investments, all of your securities, all of your holdings, and I want you to just... Imagine the thought of giving it all up so that you have nothing but me. He says, I want you to sell everything, give everything away. I want you to follow me. The man walks away sad, and here's the warning. Money has such a power over us that it defines us. It becomes our measure of worth. It becomes our treasure. What's a treasure? A treasure is something that you can't live without, right? Because we're going to die for the things that we treasure most. A treasure is something you can't live without. And because of that, because without wealth, you don't know who you are. You're going to feel insecure. Why? The reason why is because all the way back in the days of the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, chapter 2, in the Garden of Eden, we had an identity. We had security. We had an advocate. We had total provision in our lives. And, but when we chose to increase our options, increase our potential, increase our freedom, increase our joys, increase our richness on our own against God's will, against his, his, uh, his desire for us, we lost ourselves. 
We lost ourselves. We lost our identity. We lost our security. We lost our advocate. We looked elsewhere to increase our options, potential, and freedom. And in a sense, what happened is we decreased our options, potential, and freedom. And ever since then, ever since man was driven out of the Garden of Eden, we've been trying to wait, find a way to get back in on our own. And that's the power of our wealth. Jesus warns us that wealth has a way of intoxicating us to believe that we can get back in on our own. Because if you amass a certain amount of wealth, there's your comfort, there's your source of security, there's your source of identity. Now you have a reputation, now you've got status. We had all these things, we had ultimate approval in the garden. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion against true provision, we've lost all that. And so ever since then, we've been trying to work our way to get back into the garden on our own and try to arrive on our own. And when we can arrive, we say, with our wealth, we say, yes, now I'm okay. Now I can be validated. Of course, wealth can buy us comfort. Nothing wrong with comfort. Yes, wealth can buy us trendy diversions. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, wealth can purchase certain services in our lives. But even deeper than that, it gives us a semblance of control. It gives us a semblance of security. Control in an incontrollable world. Certainty in an uncertain world. Security in an insecure world. In an unsafe, broken world. It intoxicates us. When you're intoxicated, your judgment is altered. Your judgment is altered. It shapes your judgment. Wealth has a way of distorting your view of reality, of yourself, of other people. You tend to judge other people based on their wealth. You tend to judge their abilities based on their wealth. It blinds your view of what you really have, of who you really are. With money, you feel good. It increases your sense of worth, increases your confidence. Wealth distorted this man's view of himself. Verse 17, he says, what can I do? to inherit eternal life. I mean, the very nature of an inheritance is that you do nothing. You do nothing. It's actually more about status, your position, your relationship. He says, all these things I've kept since I was a child. In other words, what he's saying to Jesus, the pitch that he's making to Jesus is, I am worthy. Then why did he go to Jesus in the first place? He goes to him and he says, good teacher. I just need to make sure I didn't miss anything because I'm a good person. I've done all these things and I've done it right ever since I was a child. I just need to make sure I didn't miss anything. And you are a good teacher. I need your validation. Deep inside, ever since the days of the garden, in our spiritual DNA, because we've lost the, the reflection of the image of God that we were created in has been broken Deep inside, there's an insecurity that is set in our lives, a doubting of ourselves. And we're constantly looking for approval. Why? Because all of the forms of validation never give us the validation that we lost in the garden that we need. Never give us the validation. All earthly forms of validation never give us the validation that we seek, that we need. That's why we're insecure. Deep inside, we're looking for validation, approval. It's why we think wealth is enough, and we work, and we work, we labor, we become slaves. Wealth is a way of distorting our view. We become slaves. And so we're working and working, and we're laboring, and we're toiling. And so that everybody around you can say, yes, you have made it. You can be validated. Yes, you are legitimate. And it's not enough. We work to build a reputation, for instance, We work really hard to build up 
a reputation. And uh, you want to see how fragile our lives are, fragile our psyches are. It takes one person to make a comment, one ill comment about you, and that just sits with you. It's like the, the potency of the tea. It just seeps into you. And you fall apart. Why? Because we're desperate for validation. And we think that wealth and our virtue, here's this man, he's a good man and he's a wealthy man. We think that's the sum of what we need to get that validation that we seek. Our sin has created this God-sized hole in our hearts. And nothing in the world can ever fill it. But wealth has a way of distorting us to make us think that we can fill it. That we can fill it. If we just have enough, then we are secure. We're in control. In the 1990s, there's a movie that came out called Tombstone based on a true story about what happened in the Midwest, uh, the story of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And towards the climax of the film, you have Wyatt Earp dialoguing with Doc Holliday, his friend, talking about his, his duel with his arch enemy that's pending, Johnny Ringo. And he wants to understand Johnny Ringo, and he goes to his friend who is a sharpshooter, a great with the gun, great with the pistol, and he asks him, what kind of man is he? And Doc Holliday says this. He says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. The Bible says ever since the Garden of Eden, we're all like Johnny Ringo. We think money can fill our hearts. We think power is enough. If we can just have enough power and control in our lives, it can fill that void in our hearts that's been left by sin. It's been created by sin, and so it's a God-sized hole. And so we're trying to be gods with our wealth. That's what we're doing. We're using wealth as a way of convincing ourselves that we're worthy, that we're valid, that we're okay, and so we're working. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves, constantly trying to get validation and approval to fill that hole because if we're validated, then we're okay. And that's why Jesus says in verse 21, there's one thing you lack. You lack real assurance. You want assurance? I want you to follow me. There's one thing you lack. You lack confidence. You lack validation. I want you to follow me. I want you to put these things behind. I want you to get rid of the distortion. I want you to get rid of the thing that's blinding you. I want you to get rid of the thing that's intoxicating you. I want, you, I want to sharpen your judgment so that you can see, and I want you to follow me. Then you will have the validation. Then you will have the confidence that you seek, that you need. He's saying, I'm the source of validation that you're looking for. Follow me. But the man couldn't, and so he walks away sad. And so this first part of the text to- shows us that our wealth, our possessions and buying power, that's our monetary capital, our careers and our jobs, that's our career capital, right? Our positions and our skill sets, that's our human resource capital. Our degrees, that's our intellectual capital. Our networks, that's our social capital. Lots of different types of wealth. All these things may have a power and a grip over us, distorting our view of our own identities and our sense of worth. That's the first point. Now, the second point is a lot shorter. Why does it have a power over us? And we come to this part of the text, very famous part of the text, uh, where we arrive at Jesus' controversial teaching. And he begins and he says in verse 23, after the man sadly walks away, he looks to his disciples and he says, how hard it is. For a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were amazed. 
And then in verse 24, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's clear here that Jesus was questioning whether or not this rich man had eternal life. But notice the disciples, they're poor. The disciples have given up everything. They're poor. You notice they didn't respond to Jesus by saying, well, yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense because that guy, he's so arrogant. He's so obnoxious. I, I, I really didn't like the guy anyways. After all, I mean, I know I have eternal life because I'm poor. I'm absolutely poor. And this man's rich, so that totally makes sense. Clearly, Jesus wasn't saying that. Why not? They weren't saying that. Why not? And it's because this was not just a typical rich person. We saw this previously, but the other disciples described him as a rich, young ruler. He wasn't just rich. The man asked Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus responds, and he says, he says I want you to obey these commandments, particularly the commandments that have to do with your relationship with other people. Murder and adultery, stealing and defrauding, honoring. In other words, Jesus is asking, do you defraud other people? Have you, I mean, you're a rich person. Have you ever exploited people for your own personal gain? And the man basically is saying no. Ever since I was a child, I was brought up to be honest. I've kept all these commandments. I've always treated people with kindness. I've always treated people with integrity and with respect. When Jesus Christ says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, notice it says the disciples were amazed by what he was saying. Later on, it says they were even more amazed. And here's why. It's not because this man wasn't good enough. It's because the man was so good. He was so good. This, made, this man made his wealth through discipline, through hard work, through being a good citizen. He had terrific character. Notice, when he says, all these I've kept when, he, when I was a child, not a single person spoke of him and said, no, 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 I saw you do this. You definitely exploited people. I, I saw you defraud people. I saw that. Nobody speaks up. In fact, the disciples, when he said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples were amazed. And later on, you notice the disciples say, basically what they're saying is, well, if this man can enter the kingdom of God, who can? This is a good man. If he can't get in, who can? Nobody was rolling their eyes at this man when he was speaking. This rich young ruler had virtue. He had integrity. He had outstanding character. He was an outstanding citizen. And he made his wealth honestly. He was a great man. He was such a good person that he made the disciples doubt themselves. And it wasn't the sheer fact that he had wealth. And it couldn't have been because of the sheer fact that he had wealth that Jesus Christ was rejecting him. Clearly here, Jesus is not saying that the simple fact of having lots of money is what condemns you. It's what the money does. Why does it have a power in our lives? Jesus says, because of the power of wealth, how difficult it is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
commentators have been struggling with this, struggling to understand what Jesus has been saying, what he meant by that phrase, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You see everything. Some of the commentators that focus on the camel, some of them focus on the needle, some of them focus on the thread that goes through the, they, they're constantly trying to dialogue in writing what Jesus actually intended to mean, what he's implying here, but they all agree on one thing. Jesus was using a metaphor. And what he was saying was, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because money has such a grip on his heart. This rich young ruler couldn't imagine life without his wealth. The wealth defined him. The author has this very poetic way of showing us how the man approached Jesus on his knees for help. Help me improve my life. But what Jesus said was so disturbing, so disagreeable to him, he walked away on his own two feet. Because at the end of the day, the money bought him control and he couldn't give it up. He was going to a king and he says, no, no, I'm a king. He's going to a power and he's saying, that's not enough. He was going to true wealth and he's saying, that's not enough. He was coming to true wisdom and he's saying, that's not enough. You see, the man approached Jesus on his knees but walked away sad on his own two feet. Money was the source of his strength. His wealth was the source of his power, the source of his reputation, the source of his status, the source of his security. And Jesus is basically saying, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God unless, verse 27, God himself intervenes. Nothing is impossible with God. Money has such a grip on our lives, it would take God himself. Think about this. Money has such a power in our lives to intoxicate, to distort, to enslave us that God himself, unless God himself intervenes, we will be forever lost in its grip. So how can we be free from the grip of the power of money? It's an amazing lesson. The disciples were amazed by this. But you notice... This man comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher. Jesus didn't come to be a teacher, even though he was a great teacher. Jesus didn't come to be a moral example, even though he was an excellent moral example. Jesus didn't come to become just a religious leader, even though he was an excellent leader. He came to be our substitute. The rich man came to Jesus but he was confident in his own wealth. He was confident in his status. He lived up to the law. He lived up to the commandments. He was wealthy, and it made him confident. Look at the patience of Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus. You sit in a small group. Every one of us, at some point in our lives, have sat in a small group, and there's that one person who shares something that always kind of grates you wrong because they share something, and it just sounds obnoxious, or it sounds arrogant or it sounds prideful to you and it just kind of grates on you just a little bit and we kind of roll our eyes i mean we don't do it physically but in our hearts we kind of roll our eyes at, at these people right but notice look at the gentleness of jesus you don't see that look at the compassion i mean jesus knows the man's heart he could have easily called this man out but notice he doesn't he doesn't roll his eyes at the man he doesn't make some snarky comment at the man. In fact, in verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's that amazing. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. 
countless times to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, high people. Jesus is very, very harsh in his admonition, very, very harsh in his rebuke. Sometimes he's practically cursing them. But with this rich young ruler, look at the gentleness of Jesus. You want to know why? It's because if anybody understands the man's sadness, it's Jesus. If there's anybody who understands what it takes to give everything up that you have, your inheritance, your, your wealth, your possessions, your status, is Jesus. Jesus tells the man, I want you to go. I want you to give up. I want you to sell everything. I want you to give it up to the poor. And I want you to come and follow me. In other words, here's how you get eternal life. I want you to go. I want you to empty yourself. I want you to give and give and give. I want you to sacrifice. And, I want you, and then you're going to have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. How do you get over the power of money in your life? There it is. The answer is surrender. One word, surrender everything. Surrender everything. Loosen your, the grip in your heart. Surrender everything and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your love for Jesus has to be greater than your love for anything else in the world. And Jesus Christ, he understands how much it hurts. The Apostle Paul says, I die every day. You know why he's saying that? Because when you give up something that you love, when you give up your status, I'm not just talking about the surface things. It's the things that those things mean. When you give up your reputation, when you give up your status, Parents, I know you have children. It's not just about giving up your children as a sacrifice. Clearly, Jesus is not saying, I want you to throw your children into a fire. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying, it's what the children do to you. I want you to sacrifice that. Is Jesus Christ the single most important thing in your life? Is your relationship with Jesus Christ the single most important thing in your life? To the degree that it shapes the core values of your heart. Every relationship is subordinate to your relationship with Jesus. Every possession is subordinate to, your, to you being in Jesus and having Jesus in your life. That's what he's talking about. The Apostle Paul says, I die every day because he, had to, he knows what it means to give up. It's like dying. When you give up the thing that is most important in your, your life, because of your relationship with Jesus, you feel like you're dying. Why do you think they call a relationship with Jesus? You become so new that he, call, he says to Nicodemus, it's called new birth. Why do you think? He says, you must be born again. Jesus Christ is also a rich, young ruler. And he knows what it's like to give up everything. He knows what it's like to sacrifice everything and give it to the poor. He gave up his honor. He gave up his glory. He gave up his wealth. John chapter 1 says he came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. He gave up his entire inheritance. He had it all, but left it all, and he gave it up. Philippians chapter 2 says, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't trying to do this to improve his life. The rich man said, I want to grasp it. 
I want to know how to improve. Tell me what I need to do. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus instead made himself nothing, became a servant, emptied himself of his glory, and went to the cross. You know what that means? In Mark chapter 14, Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested, just before he went to the cross, and there he was grieving. It says this, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The word sorrow there is the same Greek word used to describe this rich young ruler's sadness when he walked away from Jesus. So when he's looking at the rich young ruler, he understands the pain. He says, my soul is grieving. He understands that pain. He understands the sadness of surrender. He understands the difficulty of surrender. Jesus Christ is far richer than this ruler, far more virtuous. He's the only man who could ever dare say, I have lived up to all these commandments. I've lived up to every law, every commandment. And he was still young. He was still young. And he was a king of a kingdom far greater and far more vast and far more just, far more complete than this, than this man in this text here. But in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ suffered grief to the point of death, he says, because he knows, because he understands. And he must surrender. God had asked him to go God had asked him to empty himself. God had asked him to give everything up. God had asked him to follow all the way to the cross, and he obeyed perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. The rich young ruler, he walked away. He walked away because he points to the greatest rich young ruler who would never walk away. In fact, he came down on mission, journeyed all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just give up his worldly wealth. He didn't have any worldly wealth. He was stripped naked. Anything that he had left was stripped from him. He had lost his status. And on the cross, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying here is, Now I've lost my relationship with the Father. I lost my relationship with God. The sum of my whole wealth, my status, my reputation, my honor, my glory, my wealth, I've lost it. I've given it up. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he said. The cross was, his, was the place of ultimate surrender. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this is my nightmare, the ultimate nightmare. This is ultimate loss. My God has forsaken me. I'm cosmically bankrupt. I've lost my identity. I've lost my security. I'm defenseless. I've lost my wealth. I've been stripped of everything. The rich man grieved at the mere thought of losing everything, the mere thought of losing his treasure. Jesus grieved at the certainty of it at the certainty of it, and he did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. He gave up his security so that we could have security. Jesus Christ gave up the love of the Father. Why? So that we could have love of the Father. Jesus gave up access to the Father. Why? So that we could have that access. 
Jesus Christ lost his treasure, sacrificed, gave up his treasure. The only reason why you would ever give up your treasure is because you found the greatest treasure. What was Jesus' greatest treasure? In Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. What was that joy? It was you. You are the treasure. You are the treasure. We are the treasure. A treasure worth giving everything else up for. That was his treasure. Behold the true rich ruler who gave up the greatest treasure to make you his treasure. And when you behold him, there is the validation that you need. There is the validation that you seek. And when you see that, when you look at the beauty of Jesus, Jesus Christ becomes your treasure. That's how you loosen the grip and the power of wealth in your life. You've got to preach that to yourself over and over and deeper and deeper until it hits those areas you were not letting it hit before. Only the power of the gospel can do that. Only the power of the spirit can do that. He says, with man, this is impossible. You can't will yourself into it, but with God, nothing is impossible with God. Does that move you? I mean, does that get you or what? Does that get you? That's going to change how you measure other people up. That's going to change how you measure and define your life. That's going to change what you view as valuable in your life. I mean, think about potential dating partners. Some of us here are single, actively looking and searching. It's going to shape the way you view a potential dating partner, right? What you use to measure a man up, what you use to measure a woman up. up. Most of the time we ask, what does he do? What does she look like? That's what we ask. You would want someone who understands real freedom. You would want somebody who understands real security, who is truly secure. You would want somebody that, that is led to deep integrity of the soul and confidence. Do you see that? Do you see that? Oh, and it's going to change how you view your money. It's going to change how you view your money. Money is just a blessing that God has given you. It is just a blessing. It will not define you. And when it doesn't define you and you see it as a blessing, it's going to open up for opportunities for you to give. And you're going to be able to give radically because it doesn't have a grip in your life. Do you see that? It's going to allow you to give radically because the grace of God in Christ has been radically poured out, emptied out for you. Do you see that? As we come to the table today, let's gaze just for a while on the simple elements that will be uncovered in front of us. This is the sum. The king has chosen to represent himself in these simple elements. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And he became broken for us so that we could become the sum of his wealth. Do you trust that? Let's pray.